faith. You know, one of the things that's exciting about when you come to Christ, when you're a new believer in Christ, is the reality that God is your heavenly Father. He's Father. He's Daddy, as someone said it during the worship time. And along with that comes the truth that you now have some new brothers and sisters. You're part of a family. And uh, families are not closed units. Families can grow and expand. They can expand through birth. They can expand through adoption. They can expand by somebody wanting to be part of that family. Some of you remember my daughter Grace, worship here, grew up here in our church and all. Grace, uh, uh, she moved to Boston last weekend, and she got engaged. Grace is now engaged to Denzel Drennan, and um, we're excited. So now, as some of you know, I have two engaged kids now, James and Kate, and now Denzel and Grace. It's a crazy, exciting season for Terry and I, for our family. I was thinking about this, uh, uh, the many times over the last few years where, where our family gets together, you know, it's a birthday or just Christmas or Thanksgiving, and, and someone invites a significant other. You know what I'm talking about. You know, our, our kids are going through the 20s, and now they're, a couple of them are 30 now. But um, you, have, you, you have a family gathering, and a, and a significant other shows up, and you, you hear it, and you say, okay, I wonder what this person's going to be like. You know, you know, you maybe you know the feeling that uh, we, we've gone through those times. Um, it's interesting when those times, maybe even, even family reunions, those kind of times. Um, there's often a strange feeling, especially for that new guest and for the one who, by chance, brought that new guest into the family. They don't get half the jokes. They don't understand why certain topics cause real tension in the room. They don't get why certain people's comments seem crazy, and yet they, but they carry a lot of weight, where other people's comments are practically ignored. They, don't, they, they, don't, they, they can see someone biting their tongue because they want to say something. They see the blood dripping out because they're biting it so hard. They don't understand why, during the height of an interesting discussion, certain people want to go and watch the game in the other room. Who could that be? I, they don't have the history, nor the relationships, and so they might feel a little bit left out. Am I describing your family? I don't know. This very, maybe dysfunctional group of people, but it's very typical. And, and each of the participants that come, the new guests, they, they have a feeling of, of a little bit of frustration because they're not getting everything, and yet an incredible joy and sense of identity. That you hear people who belong together and know it. Or if, if, if the typical family is somewhat normal, there'll be that mysterious attraction and appeal, something that draws the guests to want to be part of that family. And I've, I've learned that there are many people in our world who are so disconnected that even, they crave to be part of a family, even a dysfunctional one, that they long for it. God is our Father. He's called us to be brothers and sisters and to be together 
And he calls us together for a feast each week, a family gathering each week, and that's what we do on Sundays. So as the song, not the Christian song, but the song declares, we are family, I, my brothers, sisters, and me. It's not in our hymn book, but it's got some good theology there. But we need to understand that it's not a closed family. It is not a closed family. In fact, it's not only allowable, but wonderful when non-family members can come to the family gathering. Let's let's read the text now. Let me pause and read the text. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse uh, uh, 20 to 25. As we're continuing this, this chapter 14 of Corinthians in our series on worship. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophecy and and, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God's word. My title is Expanding the Family. Expanding the Family. Matthew 28, the Great Commission is to go and make disciples, make people disciples, make them followers of Jesus. Many people have a wrong understanding, a wrong view of what it means to follow Christ. Being in Christian worship, for for, for the for seekers, it it, it should give them a proper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. That's what I want you to get today. That being in the Christian worship should give a, a, a proper sense of what it means to follow Jesus for us who follow him and for those who are thinking about following him. The series is, we're walking through Christian worship. We're looking at the second half of Corinthians and looking for principles about Christian worship in this series that we've been in for the last few weeks. And chapter 14, we're going to look at every verse in this chapter because it's the key chapter that Paul, Paul drives of this whole section. Chapter 14 is about, it's the tongues and prophecy chapter. But as I said last week, it's about communication. It's about communication. Look last week at verses 1 to 19. I hope you're convinced that the apostle is pleading that believers back then and believers throughout the ages focus their attention on edifying, building one another up when they gather and not merely chasing feel-good experiences each week. We looked at the four goals of worship, that we, of, of faith. We talked about that at the end, that, uh, that uh, for years, Pastor Craig has said that our goals are to first glorify God, to then to exalt Jesus Christ, to build up believers, that was last week's passage, and then to attract seekers. That's what we're going to talk about today, to, to attract seekers. We talked about the fact that God gives people the instinct to seek, even though naturally we don't. Paul used the word in verse 16, and, and we use it down in our passage today, the word outsiders, outsiders. These are the uninitiated person, the, the unbeliever, the inquirer, the seeker. And, and this next, these next, the next paragraph continues his concern for the outsider and how, how out of control the, 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 the charismatic, charismatic chaos of Corinth 
it's not helpful, particularly for the outsiders, but for no one. Now, where are we going today? My, my, my uh, outline, if, if, you, if you want the church that reaches lost people, we need to have worship services to do three things. First, to answer the questions on people's minds, the questions on their mind, verse 20. Secondly, that, that services that recognize the distinction, the distinctions of spirituality. We'll talk about that. And then thirdly, services that expose the idols of our hearts, the idols of our hearts, verses 24 25. First of all, we need worship services that answer the questions of the mind. Brothers, he says in verse 20, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He's basically saying in verse 20, you guys need to grow up. Grow up. That's what he's saying. Uh, be, be, be mature in your thinking. He says, uh, yes, be, be childish when it comes to your understanding of evil, because that, you don't need to understand a lot about evil to know it's evil. But be, be, be adult or mature in your, in your minds, in your minds. He said in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he, he said they're acting fleshly, carnal. They're acting like babes. He's attacking the, in, in, the immaturity there. One commentator, Blomberg, says, a preoccupation on tongues without concern for their effect on oneself and others is childish. That's what Paul's getting at here. Their preoccupation on tongues without concern for others and for themselves is childish. See, so the charismatic Corinthians were not in their personality and in their temperament much like modern-day Presbyterians like us. We Presbyterians love this reminder to renew your minds and be mature in your thinking, that kind of a thing. We, we are really what some would say cognitive in our expression of our faith. Here's a reminder for us, Presbyterians. We're to love God holistically. What did Jesus say? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just with your mind. <laughs> with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The holistic love for God, all you have, give it to God. Not just the mind, but the mind important. We who err on the side of cognitive discipleship need to hear the Holy Spirit remind us that just because praying with the mind is more important than praying in the Spirit, it doesn't negate prayer in the Spirit. That's what Paul would have us to hear. That's what we need to hear. Paul is also saying uh, that outsiders or inquirers, they need to hear things that will make them think and understand. They need to see that we have not just tossed our minds at the door and, and then come into the church. No, we brought our minds. We want to think about the Christian faith, the, the reasonable faith. There, there are good reasons to believe. We've not walked into the church and, and stayed in the church because we've done that because of the compelling, solid evidence about Christ being born of a virgin, willingly dying on a bloody cross, resurrected and coming again. There's good reasons to believe that stuff. And so we do what Paul exhorted the Ephesians to do in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, we might grow up to maturity. Now, worship service, it doesn't ignore the world around us, but seeks to help worshipers view the world uh, through the lens of the gospel, having a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview. The scriptures present a worldview, a perspective that's consistent with what we perceive to be real with our five senses. You know, one of the interesting things that we hear in, in, in society is the fact that, that people just need to love each other and, and, and act right before each other and, 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 and just treat each other better. What, what, you know, why can't we do that? And 
you know, it's interesting that people know that we need to do that. Most people believe that that's what we ought to do. The problem is not knowing it. The problem is doing it. And, 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 and so why don't we do that? Well, the, the believer understands, because of our perspective of Scripture, that, that human beings don't do it because we're flawed. We're sinners. You and I and all, we're sinners. We're fallen in Adam. We've, we fail. We are sinners. We're flawed. And God has lovingly provided for us institutions, institutions in society, to help us to, to do what we ought to do and yet those institutions don't always do the job because they're, they're made by individuals. They're made up of individuals, the family, the church, the government. These flawed institutions because they're, they're, they're um, peopled by human beings who are flawed. But the point is simply this. There's a worldview. An unbeliever who comes into a Christian assembly should go away with a little understanding about what it means to be the follower of Jesus Christ. A little more understanding of how the life and the death of Jesus impacts our 21st century world. If not, then authentic Christian worship has not really taken place yet. So, so in worship, an unbeliever should become aware of what a mature Christian perspective on reality looks like. Now, the second thing is we need worship services that recognize the distinctions of the Spirit. Distinctions of the Spirit. What am I saying here? Uh, in verses 21 to 23, Paul gives an example of here that, that will convey his point, the point he's getting at. He contrasts prophecy and tongues. Again, that's the context in, in, in the first part of the chapter. He, and he, he, pro prophecy, we talked about last week, a great definition I found this week by Leon Morris, a commentator. It denotes something rather like preaching, but it is not identical with it. It is not the, deliver, it is not the delivery of a carefully prepared sermon, but rather of words directly inspired by God. That's what New Testament prophecy was. Now, now, regarding tongues, Paul is saying that they are not a sign of blessing, but a sign of judgment. You see that in the text. And he cites a verse from the Old Testament, from the law, which is his word for the Old Testament. Um, it's, not, it's not from the, the law of Moses. It's actually from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet Isaiah. In that context, the, the Assyrians were going to invade uh, the people of God, and they, they spoke in a language that was not understandable to the Jewish people. It's not their beautiful, fluid, lovely Hebrew, but it was their foreign, rough language, and they couldn't understand the speech of their oppressors. It's bad enough to have an oppressor. It's worse if the oppressor's talking and you don't even know what they're saying. But that was the situation. So this foreign language accompanied the Assyrian invasion, and, and the Assyrians were the agents of divine judgment upon them due to their idolatry, their drunkenness, and their worldliness. This is Isaiah 28, where he takes this from. And Paul says in verse 22, the tongues, therefore, were a sign for unbelievers. And they, he says they still are. That's the nature of tongues, he says, a sign that they were outside of the covenant of God's blessing. When they heard this foreign language and confusion brought in, they, there was not the clear communication that they had when they had their relationship with God right. Now God is bringing, bringing judgment to them. They don't understand what's being said. So the gift of tongues showed that there's a distinction. There's distinctions that God is making. There are some who have understandability of what's being said and some who don't. They're outsiders and insiders. They're saints and they're sinners. Malachi chapter 3, verse 18, once more, 
you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Distinctions. Tongues show a distinction because some understand and some don't. Many, many don't like the truth that all people are not equally recipients of God's grace. Some people don't like that truth. This is why there are so many people in our world who are suggesting in our day that in the end all people will ultimately be saved. That all people who will go to heaven, that a loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. Of course, these are conclusions that come from the half-truths that sadly mostly have been heard by and spoken by professed believers. No, Jesus, more than anyone in Scripture, was very clear about distinctions. He talked about those who would come to him for mercy and salvation. He wept for those who wouldn't. He said, come to me and rest, find rest. He talked about sheep and goat. He talked about wheat and tares. Jesus reminds us that there are distinctions on earth and in eternity. Even our passage, Mark chapter 3, that we heard earlier in the scripture reading, we heard Jesus making a distinction between his spiritual family, those who are around him hearing the word of God, and those on the outside who were not hearing the word of God. His family, his mother and brothers and sisters. He makes a distinction. And then later in, in chapter 4, the parable of the sower, he says that the, the kingdom secrets are not for those who are on the outside. Jesus makes distinctions. Outsiders are, are welcome to participate among God's people. But we have to say that just like in those family gatherings, there'll be some things that can't be understood easily until you're on the inside. I'm going to talk about what some people call common ground. Common ground, because this is important. Churches in the last 30 years have, in my opinion, overemphasized the common ground that we have with those in the world who are not yet following Christ. And there are great reasons <laughs> that we do this. Because people think that Christians are weird. We probably are. <laughs> Out of touch, backwards, moralistic, whatever. You know the word. You know the stereotypes. And so churches have sought to say, no, we're just, we're just like you. We're common people with a spectacularly uncommon Savior. Yes, but we're just common people. Now, I appreciate this tendency, this, this, this movement. However, I want to give a strong caution to it. While, we're, while in Adam, we do have common ground with people. In Christ, the scriptures say we're new creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. And maybe we, we need to be reminded that we are new people in Christ and we're no longer like we were in the world. We need to remind people that Paul said that unbelievers are following the God of this world, Ephesians chapter 2, that we have turned from idols to serve the true and living God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dearly beloved son, Colossians chapter 1. It was Jesus who, who called some folks children of the devil. Jesus said that. We would do well to remind people more often that God is making distinctions. And the ultimate distinction is that some will die and go to heaven 
and others will not. Jesus said they will go to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Wasn't prepared for them, prepared for the devil and his angels. Very sobering truth. The, the insistence on common ground and the desire for people to become disciples has led to what some have called seeker churches. Seeker churches. Maybe that's a new phrase to you. Not just seeker-sensitive churches, but seeker churches. This is a problem. I'm going to draw a chart here when you see the distinction between a seeker-sensitive, healthy church that's concerned about seekers and a seeker church, a seeker service, where there's too much emphasis on the seeker, so much that the believers are not edified enough. Okay, In a seeker service, the focus is all on the stage. In a seeker-sensitive service, there's a focus on the congregation. In a seeker-service, entertainment is a means to conversion. In a seeker-sensitive service, worship is a means to making disciples. In a seeker-service, you hope seekers all feel comfortable. In a seeker-sensitive service, you hope the seekers will become convicted. Difference. In a seeker service, you focus on the felt needs of people only. In a seeker sensitive service, you focus on their greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sins, eternal life through Jesus. In a seeker service, you pursue familiarity with the outside culture. In a seeker sensitive service, you realize that we are to be countercultural as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, how does this play out? I could say more about that. I went to a conference once um, in the last few years. Um, I got got frustrated when the person stood up on the platform, the the plenary session, and they dimmed the lights. I couldn't read my Bible. I said, what's with this? And then I noticed in the room, everybody had the smartphones out. I said, okay, so that's what's going on. But then I thought about it, because I've seen this before at other churches. Where when 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 the when the spotlights on the stage they dim the lights, and and um, you know I I just believe we ought to be able to look at each other, and see each other and see each other's reactions. And sometimes you know I know some of you aren't the best on Sunday mornings, but we're a people of, we're the people of God. We need to see each other and 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 see how we're responding to what God is saying. It's, it it but see it. The philosophy is you want to provide a show to show that the gospel is good so that the seekers can want to follow Christ. Part of what we want people to see is the body. And if it's dark, you can't see people. It's not just you and God. You're part of a body. So we got the lights on. Praise the Lord. We got the lights on. Went to a movie recently. And... and we had VIP seats, recline. You know, they bring, you, can, you order food, they bring the food to you. I say, I hope churches don't get to that point where it becomes a VIP seats in the church. And Marva Downs wrote a book called Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down, wonderful book. She says this, uh, quote here, worship that encounters God is lasting attraction. Talk about attractional worship. Worship that encounters God is lasting attraction. Music style, liturgy type won't matter if God is not found in them. 
If they don't incarnate God's self-giving or enable us to respond to God's grace. Worship that forms character is a lasting attraction. Authentic worship will teach us that we're desperate sinners, enfold us in gracious forgiveness, empower us to go back into the world changed, eager to share God's transforming power with our neighbors, ready to do all we can to build justice and peace in the world. And worship that builds community is a lasting attraction in community. In order to be a circle that welcomes and nourishes strangers, churches must be a company of committed individuals whose lives depend upon the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must not obscure this truth by transforming a congregation into an audience, by transforming proclamation into performance, or transforming worship into entertainment. Great quote. The goal of the service is to give people, believers and unbelievers, a sense of God's presence. <laughs> Last month, Pastor JB, our future pastor, he was talking about this. When he looked at Luke chapter 5, and the, his, his theme was the presence of Jesus. What does the presence of Jesus do? Remember that? It brings challenge and it brings blessing. That was his point. The presence of Jesus. Sometimes Christ's presence will create a mood of great joy. Sometimes it's only appropriate to have a mood of tears. Sometimes a mood of fear. Sometimes a mood of just frustration. The point is simply, the seekers should be, become aware of the spiritual distinctions that are a reality in God's world. The last thing I want to say, verses 24-25. We need services that expose the idols of hearts. That expose the idols of heart. Look at verse 24 and 25. The secrets of heart disclose, it says, Falling on his face, he'll worship God, declare God is really among you. Prophecy, communication in a known language of the worship. Uh, the congregation, ha they have several positive impacts that Paul lays out here for, in these verses. Conviction of sin, the secrets of heart disclosed. The person will repent and declare that they have a sense of God's presence. Now notice, if you think of those, those, that, that series of things there in that verse, it, in the, in the background is judgment language and accounting, secrets exposed, falling on your face before the throne of God. Uh, I, I, I can't help but think about Philippians chapter 2 that says that, 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 that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll bow and they'll confess that he truly is God. But that's in judgment. That can happen here in his presence in the church. That's Paul's point. We can have judgment now when we not, don't wait to heaven to come to that conclusion, but where people, because of they, what they see among God's people gathered in, in public worship, they become to the conclusion before it's too late that Jesus Christ is real, that he is real, and he's a life changer. So they fall down and confess that he is their God. John Piper states over and over again that mission exists because the need for more worshipers exists. See, a, follow, a disciple, a follower is one who's following Jesus, and, and part of that following is coming together with others in worship where, where they might, might feel a need for Jesus, where you might feel your need for Jesus each week. Idolatry is, is about the heart, ultimately. It's about what, the heart, what, what attracts the heart. And you know, we're all idolaters, putting lesser things ahead of God. We do that each week in our, in our lives, each day. It's true of each one of us, not just of the unbeliever. That's why we have a strong belief that we have not worshipped rightly until we have confessed our sin together. 
because as one of the reformers says, we are idol makers and our hearts are idol factories. We confess our sin, declaring our utter lack of holiness and affirming his great supply of forgiving grace each week. And we're told because of his grace to boldly approach the throne of grace. It's not only because of the blood that was shed. It's because and only because of the blood that was shed that we can come boldly. Again, Marva Downs uh, said this in her book, um, the church must be constantly alert to resist the culture's idolatries and reject its gods. In a country that worships money, power, efficiency, immediacy, and control, genuine worship invites us to be generous, meek, reflective, eternally minded, and obedient. In a society that idolizes famous people, the church affirms the gifts of all the saints and offers worship as the work of all the people. In a culture where success is measured by numbers, the church knows this message is not popular and seeks not to swell the churches, but to deepen believers' faith, a consequence of which will be that they will reach out to neighbors. More of downs. Worship is not supposed to make people just comfortable. That's not the goal. Worship is to bring people into the presence of the living God that our idols might fall down. Yes, he is love. But he's also, as Hebrews tells us, a consuming fire. So we come into the presence of the Holy One and we bow down and we worship him as our king. And, and whether we've been following Jesus for 40 days or for 40 years, his presence should produce both a conviction of sin and a joy in peace because sins are forgiven by his blood. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 14. Remind us that there's always room at the table, the family table, for more people. Remember that parable? Jesus was, was, um, told his, the, the man in, in, the, in, the, in the parable says, go, uh, the great banquet being prepared. He, said, he tells his servants to go and find people to come to the banquet. And then several, they come, and people didn't want, people didn't want to answer the invitation. He says, so go out and find some more people. He said, go into the highways and byways because I want people at my table. Great parable. Talking about, it's really ultimately talking about the, the, the ultimate wedding supper of the Lamb where, where the Father is inviting people to come to be at the table. There's some on the outside who need to be on the inside. And God is seeking, God is, God is initiating a, a program of, of sending people out to bring others in, that they may be part of what God is doing. One of the, one of the first, well, one of the first song, uh, albums by Israel uh, Houghton, Israel New Breed, was a great song that talks about uh, this. I'm well, gonna play a little clip, I think we have time to play a little clip of the song. Um, it's called Come In From The Outside. Maybe you know this song.
We got to do that song, Mark. It's a great song. <laughs> Come in from the outside. So, as I said, my daughter Grace is, my only daughter Grace, is getting married to Denzel Drennan. And I have to get used to this idea that Grace, my only daughter, is getting married. Denzel has counted the cost and has decided that he wants to be part of our crazy family. <laughs> Families can expand through childbirth, through adoption. And families expand when someone says yes to an invitation to join that family. If you're here today as a guest, but not a regular worshiper, it might be because you were invited by someone who, or, or maybe you Googled it and you, you answered Google and got here. And however, you heard about us and, and we're glad you're here. We are a family. Probably some things you didn't get, that's okay. Maybe a few strange uncles in the room, that's okay. That's what family's about, right? We're a family that longs to expand. <laughs> I'm here to declare that if you are not yet part of God's family, there's a permanent place at the table of God's family for you. We invite you to get to know the Father who has called us together. We are connected to one another because we're connected to him by faith. Faith in his only begotten son, Jesus, who died, that this family might have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh God, worship.